Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Hey everybody, good morning. Happy New Year's Eve. It's great to be with you today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Riley and I'm one of the pastors in the church. And right now I'm getting a lot of strange looks. Uh, so I know what you're thinking. What's he doing with the blowtorch? Well, I want to tell you something about myself. I like to light things on fire. And don't worry, I'm not going to light anything on fire today. I'm sure our insurance company would not appreciate that. But I do really like to light things on fire. Whenever I go camping, I want to be the guy that starts the fire. When I was a kid, I always loved burning brush piles with my dad every winter. And now I love lighting my charcoal grill and cooking a nice steak. There's just something about, so, yeah, just something primal about fire to me. It just seems right. And, um, you know, I know there are kids in the room today because it's, it's a family Sunday. So I, I want to say do not mess around with fire. It is dangerous. I have singed the hair off my hands, my arms, my eyebrows, and even my beard playing with fire. So don't do that. It's dangerous. I do kind of have a process for starting a fire. It's just the way my dad taught me how to do it. It's the way I've always done it. It works for me. I start off by building a nice log cabin out of some bigger pieces. And then I take some smaller pieces and I put those in the holes. And then at the very bottom, I put some kindling and I light that on fire with a match. And that normally works for me. It normally goes pretty well. But if the wood's wet, it doesn't always catch on fire. And if it's windy outside, sometimes it blows out. So sometimes I gotta stay right next to the fire and keep feeding it wood to make sure it doesn't go out. Well, a couple years ago, I was at my brother-in-law's house for Christmas and um, it was cold outside. He wanted to start a fire in his fireplace. And he had a very different process than I did for starting a fire. He threw some logs on his fireplace, took out one of these, <laughs> held it to the logs, and 30 seconds, he had a fire going. And I sat there and I was like, lighting a fire has always been this easy? Who is hiding this from me? It was easier for my brother-in-law to light and sustain a fire because his fuel was more efficient. I was using matches and kindling. He was using a blowtorch. So the question I have for you today is, what lights your fire? What's your blowtorch? Really, what motivates you? And today I want to tell you about what motivated Jesus. I want to tell you about his blowtorch. And this motivation is the same motivation behind the mission that Jesus has given us. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapters 9 and 10. I'm going to begin reading in verse 35. Here's what it says. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And we'll stop right there. So this story starts out with a summary of what Jesus has been up to so far. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus begins his ministry, and shortly after that, he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. This is the greatest sermon ever preached. And he also travels around healing people and performing miracles. He heals paralyzed people. He heals blind people, deaf people, mute people. He heals all kinds of sicknesses. And he also calms a raging storm, and he even brings a dead girl back to life. So because of all these miracles and because of this amazing teaching, people are following Jesus around. 
Everybody's wondering, what is Jesus going to do next? And here's what Jesus does next. This is Matthew 9, 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I love the way that Jesus responds here. He could have said, look at all these people. We've got these huge crowds following us. Let's take a break. I, I, think, I think we've got enough people. He could have said, you know, guys, we've been traveling around for a while, going from village to village. I'm kind of tired. Let's take a break. Jesus also could have said, hey, these people will not leave me alone. They keep asking me questions. They keep asking me to heal them. Let's go hide somewhere. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus had compassion on them. The Greek word that Matthew uses for compassion is splagnizomai. And it literally means he felt it in his inward parts. And you know what it's like to feel that type of compassion or type of emotion. You know, when you love someone for the first time, you have butterflies. Or if something bad happens, your heart sinks. And because of these emotions, there are cultures around the world that actually regard the area around our stomach as the emotional center of our body. So in English, if I love someone, I say, I love you with all my heart. But in Arabic, if I'm talking about someone I love, I'd say kabdi, which means my liver. So guys, I've got some, uh, some free marriage advice for you. And by the way, I think Arabic is a beautiful language. Uh, seriously, I've got some free marriage advice for you. I want you to go home today and look your wife deeply in the eyes and say, Yabed Kabdi. It means I can't live without you in the same way that I can't live without my liver. Yabed Kabdi. And if that one doesn't work for you, you can say, honey, you make my liver quiver. <laughs> but seriously, that is the type of compassion that Jesus had for the crowds. He had a visceral reaction. He felt it in his inward parts. He saw the needs of these people and he literally felt it in his guts. There are so many things about Jesus that I find absolutely captivating. His teaching is so wise. You know, we read a 2,000-year-old book, and the teaching of Jesus is still so wise. Jesus' power is unimaginable. I mean, who could raise a dead person back to life? But to me, the most amazing thing about Jesus is his compassion. I mean, just think about it. Jesus touched sick people. He put himself in harm's way to touch sick people and heal them. Jesus was a friend to social outcasts, people like prostitutes and tax collectors. Jesus cared for the poor. He elevated the role of women. And Jesus ate in people's homes. And that might not seem like the most compassionate thing to do, but just think about it. The son of God, the king of kings, eating in someone's home, sitting at their table, getting to know their family. It's hard for me to wrap my head around that. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of compassion I want to have. I want to love people so much that I feel it in my guts. I want the needs of people around me to light my heart on fire. So after this, Jesus' compassion moves him to action. Here's how Jesus responds to these needs. This is verse 37. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So Jesus has compassion for the people, and because of this compassion, he's moved to act. 
And he takes action by doing two different things. The first is he tells his disciples to pray. And sometimes when we see the needs of people around us and the people around our world, all we can do is pray. We're saying, God, these people, they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I can't do anything about it. Will you please send someone to help them? Maybe you're sitting out there today thinking, God, I don't know how to help my son. Will you please send someone to help them? Or maybe you watch the news every morning and you think, God, I see that the people in Ukraine and Gaza are suffering. Will you please send someone to help them? That's why Jesus asked us to pray. Now, after Jesus told us to pray, he sent his disciples out. And this is kind of interesting to me because, you know, Jesus says, pray, pray for workers of the harvest, but then he sends workers for the harvest out. So in a way, Jesus answered his own prayer. And the only way that I can make sense of this is with one of my favorite quotes. The pioneer missionary William Carey once said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. So pray, expect great things from God, expect him to answer your big prayers, but at the same time, act, attempt great things for God. Jesus sent his disciples out, but in the same way, Jesus has given us a mission. I want to read you the great commission. This is the very last thing that Jesus said while he was on earth. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus' ministry was fueled by compassion. And because of his compassion, he's given us a mission. He wants us to continue his work. Here's the main thing that I want you to hear me say today. Compassion is motivation for mission. Here at Plainfield Christian Church, we want everyone to be fully alive. Kyle talked about that earlier. And a part of that is being fully alive on mission. We want to help people in our community and around the world. And we also want people in this community and around the world to know Jesus. And we want you to help us do that. We are going to need every person in this church to accomplish that mission. But... It is really hard to be on mission when you don't have compassion. Helping people is hard work. And if you don't have compassion, if, if you're not moved by the needs of people, then helping people is going to seem like lighting your fire with matches and kindling instead of a blowtorch. When we see the needs of people, we must be moved to act. And I'm so inspired by the stories of Christians throughout history. So many stories of people just like you and me showing compassion. The book of Acts is the story of the first Christians. And in Acts chapter 2, we get the story of the first church. It's one of my favorite stories. I, I want to tell you how this church showed compassion. This is verse uh, 44 and 45, Acts chapter 2. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So the first church, they were so moved by the needs of people around there that they liquidated their assets to help. And because of that, nobody had any needs. That's radical compassion. I'm, there's another uh, Christian leader called Gregory of Nazianzus. He was alive during the late third century, and he's from modern-day Turkey. He's a part of the group that we call the Cappadocian Fathers. And Gregory was all about compassion. He preached a sermon called On Helping the Poor, and I want to read part of this sermon to you. This is way better than my sermon, by the way. Gregory said, faith, hope, and love are a fine thing. Hospitality is a fine thing. Zeal is a fine thing. 
Humility is a fine thing. He lists some other fine things, but I think you get the point. We must regard charity as the first and greatest of the commandments, since it is the very sum of the law and prophets. Its most vital part, I find, is the love of the poor, along with compassion for the, our fellow man. We must then open our hearts to all the poor and to all those who are victims of disasters of whatever cause. So I read that, and that's convicting to me. But when Gregory preached that sermon, it really was visionary. When Gregory was alive, compassion was not common. At that time in the Roman Empire, people's lives just didn't have the value that they do today. And uh, one example is in the field of healthcare. At the time, healthcare was very limited. If you were a Roman soldier, you would have access to hospitals. But that's because the Roman Empire wanted their fighting men to be in good shape. And if you were wealthy, you could probably afford a doctor when you were sick. But if you were a normal person, or especially a poor person, you had very, very few options for healthcare. Well, thankfully, Gregory had a friend named Basil of Caesarea. And Basil was another one of this group called the Cappadocian Fathers. And Basil, motivated by compassion, started the first public hospital in the world. And this public hospital was like a small city. It had live-in staff caring for patients in six separate wings. There was a patient for the poor, or sorry, there was a wing for the poor, a wing for the homeless, there was a wing for the elderly, orphans, there was also a wing for lepers, and a wing just for general sick people. When Basil died, Gregory spoke at his funeral, and here's what Gregory said. Others had their cooks and rich tables and enchanting refinements of cuisine, so nice food. And they had their elegant carriages, the ancient equivalent of a nice car. And they had their flowing garments, so nice clothes. But Basil had his sick and the dressing of their wounds and the imitation of Christ, cleansing leprosy, not by word, but by deed. Do you think a preacher will say anything like that at your funeral? I'm not just inspired by stories of Christians throughout history. I'm also really thankful that compassion motivates many of the ministries here at Plainfield Christian Church. I'm thankful for our prison ministry. We have a group of volunteers that serves at three local prisons. And a couple weeks ago, I was able to go to a graduation for a class called Bridges of Life that some of our volunteers led. This class focuses on victim impact, you know, helping inmates understand the impact of their crimes on victims. And it was really cool to be there. There was a good spirit in the room. And one of the inmates stood up during this ceremony and said, I have learned how to forgive myself and forgive others. It was really powerful. I'm also thankful for a disaster response group. This team has traveled around our country and even to some other countries to help people clean up and rebuild after natural disasters. Just a couple weeks ago, we had a group in Clarksville, Tennessee, helping clean up after a tornado there. I'm really thankful for our Thanksgiving dinner as well. Every year, a great team of volunteers from our church puts on this Thanksgiving dinner for people in our community. This year, we had around 200 volunteers serve around 2,000 meals to people in our community on Thanksgiving Day. It's awesome. And another thing I love about you is how generous you are. Every time we share a need, a financial need, you exceed our expectations. So this year, we had a Christmas offering. We have a Christmas offering every year. But this year, our goal was to raise $15,000. We wanted to give $5,000 to each of three local organizations to help them with the work that they were doing in our community. Well, can I tell you how much money we raised? 
we raised $28,000. Yeah, let's clap for that. That's awesome. I, I just want to thank you for your generosity. I mean, genuinely, I am blown away. <laughs> I want to go back to my first question. What lights your fire? What makes your guts turn? Is there an issue or an injustice in this world that just makes you want to act? If you don't know where to start, I'd be happy to talk to you about serving in any of the ministries that I just mentioned. All of those would be great places to serve. But if you want to know how to show compassion, here's my advice. Connection is the key to compassion. Jesus' compassion wasn't theoretical. He had compassion because he talked to people. He touched people. He had been in their homes. He knew what they needed because he had seen their needs with his own eyes. And that's what moved him to act. One of the keys to fighting, one of the keys to connection is fighting isolation. Uh, about a month ago, I was in the Dominican Republic. I really love the culture there. It's such a warm, friendly place. And um, I'll tell you a little bit more about this trip later. But we were walking through the street, and as we're walking through the street, you know, people would stop and talk to us. We would stop and talk to people who were sitting on their front porch. We were even invited in a few people's homes to come in and pray for them. Uh, it's just a really friendly culture, and I love being there. Well, you know, our culture is a little different. Our culture is a little more closed off. So like an example, when I leave work every day, I drive out of here, I head home, I pull into my neighborhood, and maybe I wave at my neighbor if they're outside. I pull in my garage, I shut the garage door behind me, I go inside my house, and if I wanna go outside, normally I go in my nice fenced off private backyard. I think you get what I'm saying. And I know that some of you are super hospitable because I've been in your homes, and I love that. But generally speaking, our culture is more closed off. And that makes it harder for us to connect with people. So my question for you is the people around you, your neighbors, your coworkers, whoever that may be, are you connected enough with them to know what they need? If they had a need, would you be able to show them compassion? If not, I encourage you to take steps to connect with them. One of my favorite paintings is Norman Rockwell's Golden Rule. I've got a picture of it up here. If you've been to my home, you've seen a print of this painting hanging in my living room. I love, you know, the diversity in the painting. I love the spiritual significance. You know, you can see most of the people in the painting looking at the golden rule. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And you can also see light in the center of the painting around the golden rule. And the story of this painting is kind of interesting. Most of the people in this painting were people that Rockwell knew in his own community, and he asked them to model for this painting. Well, do you know what all these people in this painting have in common? Do you know what all the people in this painting have in common with the people that you see on the street here in our community? Do you know what all the people in this painting have in common with all the people around the world? Do you know what all the people in this painting have in common with that guy that you don't like at work? Jesus died for each and every one of them. And that's something that we need to keep in mind. That's going to be something that motivates us to show compassion. I believe that Christians must work to meet social needs. Poverty, health care, education, homelessness. We need to care about those things. Because I think if Jesus were here, he would care about those things. But as we work to meet social needs, we must remember that the greatest the greatest injustice in the world 
is that people don't know Jesus. Jesus died for people, and they don't know it. I don't know about you, but that makes my guts turn. The sad truth is that there are more people alive today than at any time in history who don't know Jesus. And someone has got to go and tell them. So let's pray for workers for the harvest. And let's be workers for the harvest because people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And if they don't know Jesus, they won't know hope. If they don't know Jesus, they don't, won't know peace. And we believe that Jesus has the power to change families, communities, and even countries for Christ. So let's be workers for the harvest. Okay, I'm gonna pull it back together. I'm gonna get off my soapbox. I'm gonna continue reading. This is Matthew 10 too. So after Jesus empowered his disciples, he sent them out. And we get a list of all of their names. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, I think I know what some of you are thinking because I've thought a lot of these things before too. You're thinking, Riley, this is all good. I know that I need to show compassion. I know that I need to be on mission, but I just can't. I don't have time. I don't have the resources. I, I can't travel on a mission trip, which by the way, you don't have to go on a mission trip to be on mission. And you know, maybe you're thinking, I, I just, I don't know what to say. What if somebody asked me a hard question? Well, I wanna tell you about the disciples. If you were going to start a world-changing movement like Jesus, none of these guys would have been your first-round draft picks. So Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John, these guys are fishermen. They're just normal guys. And Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas, he was always asking questions. He never really got it until Jesus appeared to him after his resurrection. Matthew, the tax collector, he was hated. He worked for the Roman Empire. People thought he was a traitor. And Simon the Zealot, he's kind of the other end of the spectrum. You know, he had previously been involved in a war against the Roman Empire. My guess is that before Matthew and Simon met Jesus, they probably wanted to kill each other. And worst of all, Judas betrayed Jesus and got him killed. And we don't even know enough about the other guys to say anything about them. The disciples were uneducated. It's unlikely that any of them had any money, maybe besides Matthew. And they had a lot of character problems. If you read the Gospels, these guys really didn't get it until after Jesus rose from the dead. And on top of that, they were flighty, they were fearful, they were jealous. But for some reason, Jesus chose them. He saw the potential in them. Like I said earlier, last month I was in the Dominican Republic. I was there for a mission trip. I was there with some of our staff. We were exploring a partnership between our church and Go Ministries. And we're going to tell you more about that partnership in the next few weeks. What I can tell you is that Go Ministries has started a church planning movement in the Dominican Republic. So a handful of years ago, they had maybe 20 churches in their network on the island. Now they have closer to 200 churches. And a big reason behind their success is mentoring. Each of their pastors is expected to have an apprentice. And over a one-year period, that pastor takes his apprentice and teaches him everything that he knows about ministry. And then after that year, there's an expectation that one of them stays and one of them goes. So maybe the pastor will stay and continue to work in the church that he planted, and the apprentice will go and plant another church. 
So that's why they're seeing this rapid multiplication. Now, the interesting thing about these pastors and apprentices is really until a few years ago, most of them really didn't want to be pastors or didn't know they could be pastors. They're normal guys. These are lumber workers, plumbers, baseball players. They're not Bible college students. When a pastor chooses an apprentice, he goes to him and says, hey, I see something in you. I think that you can do what I do. And if Jesus were here today, I believe that he would look at you and say, hey, I see something in you. I see something in you that you may not even see in yourself. You can do this. Let's pick back up in verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. And I'm going to skip the next few verses for the sake of time. This Christmas was my son Johnny's second Christmas. We had a lot of fun. You know, last Christmas, he wasn't very old, so he really didn't get what was going on. But this Christmas, he was excited, and he loved opening presents. So a few weeks ago, my wife, uh, Kayla, comes to Johnny and I, and she's got this early Christmas present that she really wants to give us. And Johnny sees this package, and he's like, present, present. You know, he's excited. So Kayla brings it over to us, and Johnny reaches his hand in there, pulls out the paper, and I immediately see the look of disappointment on his face. Kayla had got us matching Star Wars pajamas. And uh, a couple people have asked today, I do not have a picture of that to show you. Uh, Yeah, sorry for the disappointment. Uh, I'd like for you to respect me. Anyway, anyway. So Johnny's disappointed. He wanted a toy or something. And being the great dad that I am, I looked at him and said, sorry, buddy, welcome to the real world. (laughs) Uh, Here's the truth. I think that some people think that following Jesus is like opening a disappointing Christmas present. We see the outside of the package, forgiveness, hope, peace, love, all these different things, and we want it. But then we open it up and we're like, man, is this all to following Jesus? I think, honestly, some people are just kind of bored of being Christians. You know, we live our lives as Christians, and some people think, go to church, read your Bible, pray every day, don't smoke, drink, chew, or date girls that do. Like, is that really all there is to following Jesus? I want you to know that Jesus has called you to a life on mission. And a life on mission is so much more than that. A life on mission is really an amazing life. So, you know, here's an example. Uh, Jesus, when he sent the disciples out, um, he he told them what to do and what not to do. Well, every year um, we take people on mission trips. And if people came to me and said, uh, hey, you know, what do I need to bring on a mission trip? What are we going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? And I responded to their questions and said, well, I don't really know where we're going to sleep. We're just going to kind of go around and whoever invites us in for the night, that's where we're going to sleep. And I don't know what we're going to eat. We'll eat whatever they feed us. And actually, don't bring any clothes or any money either. God's just going to provide for us. Well, you know how many people I would take on mission trips next year? Zero. (laughs) 
that's what Jesus did with the disciples. You know, he sent them out on the first short-term mission trip. They had seen him preach. They had seen him heal. And then he said, go do it. And by the way, don't bring any extra clothes or money. God is going to provide for you. That's crazy. That's not boring. When I was in college, I studied abroad in Morocco. And my roommate, Aaron, and I, we were reading the Bible. And we actually read this story in Matthew chapter 9 and 10. And we decided that we wanted to do what Jesus told his disciples to do. So one day we took a taxi to the bottom of a mountain and we began to climb up that mountain. And I've got some pictures of that day for you. Um, So I will say I cheated a little bit. I had enough money for my taxi ride home. But other than that and some water, we didn't have anything. Well, we get to the top of the mountain and um, there's a mosque there. It's a place where Muslims pray. And the caretaker for the mosque lived next door. He invited us in his home. He gave us some food. We had a nice conversation. And then after a while, we went on our way. And later, I uh, came across a farmer, Aaron and I did, and this farmer offered us some milk to drink. And, you know, it was a really cool experience. Everything that Jesus said to his disciples came true for us. God took care of our needs. If you live a life on mission, it will be anything but boring. The people you'll meet, the places God will take you, the opportunities he gives you will be amazing. Let's finish reading the story. This is verse 16. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils to be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above the teacher, nor the servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of a house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? So that's all the bad news. And Christians throughout history have had to deal with that stuff. But here's the good news. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Here's the last thing I want you to know. When you're on mission, God will provide. I'm so impressed by the missionaries that our church is sent to serve around the world. I mean, really, what would convict someone to sell their home pack up everything they own, quit their job, and move halfway around the world. Extreme passion for God, radical compassion for people. I want you to know that missionaries aren't perfect people. They're not super Christians. They're normal people just like me and you. 
But one thing I do believe is that missionaries take extraordinary steps of faith to pursue the mission that God has given them. And I'm always really amazed by the way that God provides for our missionaries. He provides them with friends when they're far from home. He grows their ministries in spite of really difficult circumstances. And he also provides for them financially. A while ago, one of our missionaries told me a story. This happened to him several years ago. But he was in a place where he literally had no money in his bank account. He was worried how he was going to put food on the table for his family. Well, that day he walked out to his mailbox, and inside his mailbox he found a check. A friend of his had sent him all the money he needed to take care of his family's needs. And he hadn't told that friend anything about his financial burdens. God had provided him. Now, are you going to go home today and find a check in your mailbox? Probably not, especially since it's Sunday and the post office is closed. <laughs> but here's what I can promise you. When you're on mission, God will provide. If you need energy to care for people, God will provide. If you need resources to help people, God will provide. If you need a team of people to help you be on mission and help people, God will provide. And if you're not sure what to say when you're asked a hard question, God's going to give you the words to say. That's what Jesus said in this story. I want to remind you of the last thing that Jesus said in the Great Commission. This is literally the last thing Jesus ever said on earth. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. That's a promise. I'd like to close by asking you one more question. What do you do if you don't think you're a compassionate person? Well, I don't want you to think you're a bad person. I don't want you to think you're doing anything wrong. Obviously, different people have different gifts and different personalities, and that's part of what makes the church so great is we all have different gifts and we can help each other. But here's something that I do believe to be true. Discipleship is all about becoming more like Jesus. And as you become fully alive in him, he is going to teach you how to be compassionate because he was compassionate. I promise you that Jesus can light your fire. He can turn your guts. He'll give you a mission. Right now, we're going to transition into a time of communion. Hope that you receive the bread and juice on the way in. Each week, we take communion as a reminder of Jesus' death on the cross. The bread represents his body, which was broken for us, and the juice is his blood, which was spilled for us. Today, we've talked a lot about compassion, and the English word compassion actually comes from a Latin word, compassio, and compassio means to suffer with, and I think that's really appropriate because that's what Jesus did with us. He suffered with us. When he came to earth, he experienced all the pain and all the heartache that we experience. And not only that, he put himself in harm's way in order to help people. But Jesus' greatest example of compassion was his death. When Jesus died, he suffered for us. When Jesus hung on the cross and died, he bore our sins and our shame. And because of that, they've been taken away. Because of that, we can have a relationship with God. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he proved to us that we can have new life with him. To me, the amazing thing about Jesus' compassion is that he showed it to people who really didn't love him. 
You know, people who willfully disobeyed him, people who hate him, people who don't know him. I mean, that's what Jesus did when he died for you and for me and every other person on this planet. And that's why Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the amazing thing. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's, that's the compassion that Jesus had for us. So let's take communion together. We'll start by taking the bread. You're welcome to take that on your own over the next minute or so. Then we'll take the juice together. Let's take communion. Let's take the juice together. This is the blood of Christ spilled for you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the love and compassion that you have shown us by sending your son Jesus to this earth. God, I thank you for the compassion that he showed people, touching them, healing them, teaching them a better way. And God, for the ultimate example of compassion that he showed on the cross, dying for everyone on this world, whether or not they know him, whether or not they love him. God, we are motivated by this compassion. So Lord, I pray that you help us to go out not only this week, but this year and live with compassion and be on mission. Father God, I thank you. I love you. I say this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.